Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. All right, well, welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode seven, Liquid Hot Magma. So today is pretty exciting because we're talking to a bona fide geologist, um, volcanologist, Jessica Ball, um, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the USGS. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll be chatting to her in a minute. And um, also, I, my name's Matt, by the way. I'm in Nova Scotia, Canada. And also here is Graham. Hi. Where are you? Oh, I'm in New Orleans. Uh, As per, I'm hoping that if you've if if somebody's listening to episode number seven, maybe they've heard a couple other things and already know our story, but they certainly don't know Dr. Jessica Ball's story. So why don't you introduce her? We have some notes here. And, well, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get straight to straight to Jessica. Yeah, hold on. Okay, before we get to Jessica, let me tell everybody here. This is Matt. <laughs> First time doing the introduction, and uh, if you think he's doing a great job, you should sign up here at swung.rocks and tell him how good of a job he's doing, uh, because uh, he's kind of <laughs> fumbling his way through it, but uh, continue on, buddy. Good job. I'm, I'm going to let Jessica introduce herself and tell us where she is, and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the gritty details in a minute. Ah, Hi, Jessica. Interesting. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, so, my name is Jessica Ball, as you said, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the U.S. Geological Survey in uh, Menlo Park, California, which is uh, one of their big research centers. And um, I work on uh, the hydrothermal systems in volcanoes, so basically water moving through hot rocks, and I do some uh, computer modeling um, to figure out how those systems work, and I also do a little bit of uh, geophysics field work. Um, to find out more about the the systems in the field. Very cool. And um, I, you know, I, I first became aware of you and your writing on on Twitter. Um, and you have an awesome blog on the AGU blogosphere, um, Magma Cum Loud. How do you pronounce that? Is it Cum Louder? It's not a thing for us Brits. You see this. Ah, uh... uh, I think it's Magma Cum Laude, but um, okay. I could be just. You know, butchering the Latin there, right? And and your tough cookie on, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> right? T u f f underscore cookie. If right. anybody's trying to look her up, both of those things, by the way, are mentioned in our show notes. We have a link to those in the description of the podcast. So, um, <laughs> the first question on the list here is: It volcanoes with an O or volcanoes with an E? Ah, it's volcanoes with an E. Unlike, you know, that old Dan Quayle incident where he tried to spell potato with an E, there actually is an E in volcanoes. <laughs> I'm glad we prepared some really tough questions for you, Jessica. <laughs> um, I so, have a long list of, of other grammatical questions. <laughs> well, that's okay. We just got into a, an argument on Twitter last night over, over whether ice was a rock or a mineral. So... <laughs> Ooh, 
nice one. Yeah. And, and where, did, where did that lead? Because I, th I think I caught the beginning of that debate. But I, didn't um, I believe one of the, the participants um, was served a, a uh, beverage that was advertised as being on a rock instead of on the rocks. And she was expecting some sort of rock to actually show up in the glass. But it was actually just an ice cube. It was a very pretty ice cube, but only one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, and then someone said, well, that's strictly speaking, that's not a rock. And I think someone else said, well, ice is a mineral, right? Right. And, I think that might have been me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what was the, was there a conclusion or did it just end in the kind of... Um, uh, I think... I think the, the conclusion, um, Lockwood may have been the one who, who, who brought this one up, is that ice is a monomineralic rock, so a rock made up of only one mineral. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. you, might, you might look at it and think, well, but ice is sort of temporary, right? It just melts. Mm -hmm. But you of all people, <laughs> the rocks do that too. Right, that's true. Good segue. <laughs> What's a soggy volcano? Ah, Soggy Volcano. Um, so when I wrote that title, I was I was writing about the the work I did with hydrothermal systems and volcanoes, and the the idea is that people think volcanoes are capable of of containing these sort of I don't know they're called perched aquifers, but they're basically wet areas of rock, uh, rock with a lot of water in it, high up in the volcano where you might not think it would be because in general volcanoes are pretty permeable. Um, so a lot of the work I do is to figure out if, if and how it's possible to get water high up in a volcano and then what would happen to the stability of the volcano if, if you have water in poor spaces. And how do you do that? Um, so a lot of it is uh, computer modeling. Um, I use groundwater models um, that can deal with high temperatures and pressures because you're going to find those in, in volcanic settings. Um, and I've coupled the results of the water models, which is basically um, poor pressure distributions, um, with a slope stability model that, that takes those poor pressures and also incorporates some information about um, the material properties of the rocks and then tells you um, whether different areas of the volcano are stable or not. Hmm. So do you have to manually input all this information about the rock properties? Um, some of it you manually input. Um, it's a lot of building input files. So once you've got one input file going, you can sort of use that for, for all the different ones that you're going to try based on, you know, maybe varying one rock, rock property or another. Um, I actually had to teach myself Python a couple of weeks ago to uh, do some of the, the data conversions and, and rearranging the, uh, the large data arrays to fit in from one model to another. Matt has a library. Actually, let me rephrase that. I think it's SEG, and tell me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, Matt, has a library of, of rock properties, like a rock property database, or is that something you were doing? Uh, that, were you asking me that? Yes. Grant, for a just, yeah. Um, right, yes. In fact, yes. Sorry, I'm just, that was last year sometime. I was hacking around with some, uh, I guess, ways of, uh, ways of using MediaWiki, the MediaWiki software, which powers Wikipedia, to try hosting a public catalog of rock properties, because there are all sorts of catalogs of rock properties, um, some of which aimed at oil and gas. Uh, Jessica shared with me one that was um, around uh, properties of these volcanic rocks. And I sort of poked it a bit, and we did some things, and I, did, I, I kind of dropped the ball on it, to be honest. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know what I was expecting or waiting for, some beautiful giant data set perfectly formed to land in my lap or something. Mm -hmm. But um, I think there's a thing that I've kind of parked the idea for a future hackathon. Okay, so I thought I was going to give Jessica cool reference and resource here, and I recognize that <laughs> it's the other way around. Cool. So um, you've got access to a bunch of rock properties. Mm -hmm. You are multiply lingual in several different programming languages, and somehow <laughs> you incorporate all of these damn things into a single program. Now, I read a couple of your publications and, and blog posts and stuff about the, the numerical modeling specifically, and of the three or four words I understood, uh, there was the, it, it actually seemed to be a pretty straightforward model. So it, correct me if I'm wrong, you basically take something, some uh, mathematical shape and build the rock properties into it and then have different layers within the model and then forward model as, as time goes along. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So it's a finite element model, um, which means, you know, you can you can do sort of complicated geometries of whatever you're modeling. Um, it, it's it's an unstructured one, so it doesn't have to be based on block shapes or anything like that. Um, and the model basically takes some constituent equations, so governing equations for how water moves through rock and how it responds to temperature changes and what the rock does at the same time, and solves all those equations at each point in the modeling mesh over time, over and over and over again. Um, and it incorporates the effects of one point on you know the, the nearest points to it. And so to do that by hand would be impossible because they're nonlinear equations. You know, who wants to sit there doing that? You could do it as a class exercise for maybe a couple of points on a line. Um, but when you get into these big systems, you want to use the computer to do it for you. And really, it's it's not so much that I do all the coding. Um, we, we have one of the people I work with is actually just upstairs who wrote the model. And he's great. And I've been working with him to sort of modify it to to do what I need to do um, because he hasn't used it in sort of a this this kind of volcanic setting yet. Um, so I, I sort of bridge the gap between the, the field geologists and the modelers and that, that I know how the models operate and I can do a little bit with them in terms of code, but I also know how they need to be connected to real world applications. Yeah, how, how do you sort of um, dis discriminate, I guess, between you know, realistic outcomes and un unreasonable ones? Uh, so um, you spend a lot of time justifying your, your initial assumptions. <laughs> okay. um, and you, you sort of remember that, I guess, what is that old adage, that all models are wrong, but some are less wrong than others. <laughs> Right. Um, you, you th I tend to think in terms of general behavior, you know, what is this model generally telling me as opposed to is it telling me that this exact thing is going to happen? Um, so I look for trends and, and sort of say, well, this model differs from this one because I changed, say, the cohesion of the rock and that's going to have this overall effect on the system. Hmm. So how yeah. many iterations do you run in a single simulation? I mean, uh, I assume that you perturb uh, the initial parameters and pick mm -hmm. some statistically more accurate outcome. Um, right. So the the groundwater models I use, it's actually not necessary to run the same model multiple times because the outcome is going to be the same each time. Um, 
Now, if I were doing something like a lava flow model where, you know, I have a surface and I'm sending a fluid over that and minute differences in the surface might send the lava flow one way in one simulation and one in another simulation, that would be a situation where I'd want to do multiple um, runs of the same set of initial parameters because they could come out different. But if I just rerun one model that I'm doing in the groundwater system, it'll, it'll say the same thing. So you're telling me that the, there's an any accurate statement in the uh, scene in Jurassic Park where he holds his hand up and he's dripping water on it? Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, if, if I had um, a model that somehow changed the initial conditions as it was going on, like if I, I change, were able to change the shape of the model based on what was going on physically inside it, then I would definitely need to do multiple iterations of the, of the same starting conditions. Hmm. It seems like it must take these things a long time to run. FE always does. Yeah, some of them do. Um, the groundwater side of it will take a couple of hours to maybe a day to run some of the most complicated ones. Um, the way I use, I do them is that I don't try and do everything completely in three dimensions. I sort of do a slice out of a volcano and tell the model to treat it as if it's, it's radially symmetrical. So if it's spun around an axis. Um, but the slope stability models run a lot faster and I can do those in th fully in three dimensions because also the results look more interesting when you do that <laughs> as opposed to just yeah. a slice. <laughs> and, and is that the, um, is, is that where all of the research is heading towards, uh, slope stability and, and safety around volcanoes? Is that the... Yeah, the, the sort of idea behind it was that um, a lot of the cascade stratovolcanoes might not be a danger because they're going to erupt immediately or even in the next 10 or 100 years, but because a lot of them are contain these hydrothermally altered rocks, which are weaker and wet and and you know have the potential to collapse and the idea is that if we know more about what conditions will lead to that happening then we can say well maybe this volcano has these additional hazards and and you know in addition to something like lava flows or, or eruption hazards you also want to think about landslide hazards right and these the volcanoes you're researching are mostly in the u.s are they or mostly in the in the cascades um, yeah, so the, the simulations are all sort of generic volcanoes, but they're based on cascade ones. Um, we have some geophysical data that was uh, flown aerially, um, collected on aerial surveys, I should say, um, for Mount Adams and Mount Baker and Mount, Mount Rainier and a little bit on Mount St. Helens. And so that's what I started, um, you know, used as a starting point for developing these models. Right. Oh, very cool. And uh, do, you, do you do you also do any teaching? Um, how many of you are there doing this kind of work at, at USGS? Um, sort of modeling in general, there's actually quite a few of us. Um, I share uh, an office with the woman who does the lava flow modeling that I just sort of tried to, to describe. Hopefully didn't butcher too badly. Um, and just down the hall, there's a, a gentleman who does um, magma um, dynamics. So he tries to figure out how the plumbing systems in volcanoes work. Um, and there are a lot of groundwater modelers in general. That's that's a very common thing to find in the USGS, but not very many of them do um, sort of hydrothermal system modeling. I think there's there are two other people in the geothermal group here who do exactly what I do. Right, and and, and do you, do you do any teaching or um, interaction with uh, students around the area? 
Um, I do actually. Um, I the last time I taught formally was in grad school. I was I was the professor for one of our intro sections. Um, but yeah, actually, just yesterday I was on the phone with um, students at my old elementary school, <laughs> where oh, my wow. mother works, um, and she she always gets me to to get on you know a video conference with them and talk about geology and volcanoes, and I I think that's really awesome and fun. And the kids always ask really good questions. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Love that. So let me get to the most important question of this interview. Let me jump the gun here, too. Do you get to wear that silver suit thing? Oh, no, I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you see a lot of people in Hawaii wearing that when they're going to get uh, fresh lava samples out of a flow because those flows are really, really hot. I mean, ridiculously hot. But the suits are heavy and nobody likes wearing them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but they do look really good on camera. Claire told me that she wanted to go to Hawaii on vacation, and I said, oh, let me get in touch with the university there. Maybe I can uh, put on a silver suit and go collect some samples. And she <laughs> said, you're not doing that on my vacation? And I said, well, you can come with me. And she said, all right, let's go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so we have a whole slew of less science-y questions for you because right. it's sort of related to, to your blogging and your writing and your educational outreach activities. Um, okay. And it, it's it's kind of cool to see a government employee doing blogging and and open sourcing things and stuff like that. Um, do, do you find that what do you get back most from specifically from your your blogging, your non um, technical writing? Um, I think the it it's it was most important to me as maybe a form of networking. Um, I've, I've met and, and interacted with so many people on, you know, online and in person now because of the blogging that I never would have met, you know, in, in real life. I might have encountered one or two of them in a meeting, but, you know, the, the Twitter groups and the, and the blogging just opens up so many avenues that, 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 you know, I couldn't have imagined would have been possible. Yeah, I, I find the same thing, and Matt and I, I think, have uh, found the same thing with podcasting, too. It kind of just mm -hmm. uh, opens other people's eyes to what you're doing, and then you get to have all these weird creative conversations. Um, <laughs> right. How about how about blogging uh, on the AGU network, specifically? How's that? Right. It's great. Um, so I actually, when I first started off, and God, I think it was eight years ago, I was just blogging, I think, on 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 blogger or something like that just on a, on a private blog and agu approached me and they said well you know we're we've noticed that all these science blogging networks are starting up and we'd like to do one for our members and they offered the tech support right off they said you know we'll we'll design it we'll run it we'll do all of that stuff and just make it easy for you to write and um we all all of us um sat down together and decided how we wanted the network to run um, you know, we decided we didn't want to make money from advertising. We just wanted to keep it science content or whatever content we decided. And AGU um, uh, arranged with us to say, you know, we trust you to do your own editing as long as you're not going to be super controversial and, you know, like do really stupid things. Um, but to the extent that, that, you know, they just let us have control over our own content, which is really nice. Yeah, that's yeah, excellent. Amazing. Yeah. They seem. Uh, I mean, I, f I, f I feel kind of weird about AGU and EGU actually, because um, you know I spent my geophysical career, if you can call it that, in 
industry and in sort of applied geophysics where there's a lot of other organizations. So I, I sort of never, I experienced AAPG as a student um, mm -hmm. and, you know, the Geological Society of London, so I was in the UK. Um, but AGU and EGU were never really on the radar, but they seem, my impression is that they're really ahead of the curve in terms of the things they try online and the sort of innovation they're trying at their conferences, which seem to be huge and really, like, awesome. And, uh, yeah, I feel a bit it's kind of left out. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I know that's a really easy thing to fix. I'm not whining, I'm, you know, because I can just, like, go and show up. Um, but, like, what, you know, um, if, if there's anyone listening who's, like, wondering about conferences to go to or uh, things to be a member of, would you kind of agree that a AGU seems to be a, a great organization? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely say so. I agree with, with, you know, your comment about them being ahead of the curve on, on trying out new things um, technologically and, 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 you know, bringing up new ideas at their meetings. They, they really do a good job of that. Um, the meetings themselves can be really overwhelming. Um, you know, if it's your first time there, um, you've got suddenly 20, 30, that, well, I don't know, 20, something like 25,000 people all in the same place, all trying to go to things. And you end up, you know, maybe picking a couple of rooms or one row in the poster hall where you hang out that first time around because it can be so intimidating to go try and do everything at once. All right. Yeah, and so where, like, where's that innovation streak coming from? Is there a lot of involvement from, um, uh, well, I don't want to be ageist about this, but I mean, you know, from students and younger people um, pushing that? Um, I feel like AGU has actually done a good job of reaching out to those groups um, and saying, you know, what are your ideas about things? Um, I'm involved with a couple of, of their sort of ser the service side of the organization. I'm on a few committees um, and mm -hmm. they now have um, students and early career members on the council of AGU. There's three of each, um, which is really great. So they, they have, you know, um, sort of the younger and, and, and less um, senior crowd participating in, in very high-level decisions and sort of driving the way that the society goes now. And I think the fact that they realized they needed that was really great. Yeah, that, that is really cool. And, um, yeah, I think I read that you were involved in um, a committee that makes uh, awards to, was it early career professionals? Yeah, so that's the, the Science for Solutions Award. Um, and it's it's an it's meant for graduate students and, and early career. I I forget exactly what the time limit is, but it's some number of years beyond your PhD. Um, and the idea is that it's it's supposed to award um, people who are applying their research to solving societal problems. So the the gentleman who won it last year, um, I'm sorry, I think maybe the year before last, I can't remember, um, is. He does work on solar dynamics and solar weather. Um, so, you know, solar flares and how they affect the earth. But mm. he also took that research and worked with um, people who run power grids in the United States and Africa to help protect them from solar weather. Uh -huh. So he was actually actively helping them improve the infrastructure that we depend on for a lot of things. Um, and um, I think the one before that was using combining social science with climate change research to help see how climate change affects people in, in certain countries. 
Um, so really very novel applications of, of geoscience research. Yeah, and is it still open for nomination for this year? Because I think I read that you uh, were seeking nominations. Right, we were. Um, they're closed now. I think the deadline was was in March. Um, some of the other ones go till April, but I'm pretty sure this one closed in March. And so now they're they're actually considering the nominations that they've gotten um, for all the different awards, and uh, the committees will be hearing about them soon. How many awards are there? Oh, um, dozens. <laughs> there, there are. Um, Awards that the the society as a whole awards. There are awards specific to different groups, like the heliophysics group or the you know the the volcanology group. Um, and then there are a few other sort of scattered ones. There are awards for journalism and there are awards for communications. Um, but yeah, there's a whole slew of them, and they're actually getting ready to redesign the awards website um, to make it easier for people to to find out about those things. Hmm. Cool. All right. Well, yeah. uh, we'll put a link to that in the notes so everybody can go check it out. It's a um, very cool idea, and I, I appreciate that the younger generation is, is being involved in some of those decisions. That's it's excellent. It really inspires innovation. Um, so I know next to nothing about volcanoes, but I do know <laughs> that there were a couple of volcanoes that went off recently, right? Uh-huh. So... Because it's a two-part question. Part A. Not to go too technical with the jargon. Okay, let me let me uh, let me try to keep it easy for our readers and <clears throat> myself. Uh, part A. <clears throat> What's your favorite volcano? Ooh. Um. I'll probably give you an answer you'd get from most volcanologists. I'm biased towards my my first really um, intense field area, which was down in Guatemala. Um, it's a it's actually a, a two part volcano. It's a Santa Maria volcano is the, is the larger mountain, um, and then there's a set of lava domes in a crater of Santa Maria, and those are sort of collectively called Santiaguito. And that's where I went in grad school to collect some field data um, about dome stability and, and dome uh, hydrothermal systems. Hmm. And you didn't wear the silver suit, huh? I didn't wear the silver suit, no. But I did wear, um, you know, protective equipment. Wore a hard hat. I wore gloves. I wore, you know, special boots and and all the the climbing gear that I needed to get up on the domes. If anyone is looking for a donation to the AGU volcanology department <laughs> they're looking for a silver suit okay a part b of my question is um can you tell okay so you're calculating not only you, you mentioned earlier that you're calculating hazards associated with groundwater movement in volcanoes mm-hmm. uh landslide specifically and uh so part b of the question is uh so you can tell me what's the safest volcano to uh, build my uh, investment property next to <laughs> Um, I think you want a volcano that, that hasn't been active in a couple million years, ah, then you'd be okay. <laughs> I see, okay, I got it. I got it now. Maybe, maybe. Um, Matt, so can we, <laughs> I guess we should get off of my crappy questions. Do you have any good questions for Jessica before we sign off? Um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I've got, I've got a real soft spot for volcanology because um, the first sort of geology I was ever exposed to was on a tertiary volcano in the Hebrides, in the Inner Hebrides in Scotland, um, one of the, the layered magma chambers. Um, it's like, and it, that was also the first time I was sort of exposed, because there was a professor there um, with a bunch of 
graduate students. It was the first time, I was about 16 at the time, and it was a real insight into sort of how research happens and, you know, who these students are and kind of what, what kind of things they get up to on a daily basis. Um, like, do you, do you feel like, I mean, volcanoes are pretty, pretty awesome. So, you know, like paleontology is one of those things that you can kind of, you're guaranteed that non-specialists will be interested in it. Um, but do you, like, what, what do you think about the future of volcanology? Is there a steady stream of, of students into it? Um, is there, are people still paying for research into volcanoes? Um, do, you, do you get to sort of do the things you want to do in volcanology? Or is it, like, I hear a lot from especially academic folks, about just this constant struggle with funding. Um, like, what do you feel about the future of, is it volcanology or volcanology? Just to get back uh, to the spelling. It, it depends on what country you're from, I believe. <laughs> yeah, so I agree, you, I agree, might, you might want to do the volcanology with a U, but I, I tend to spell it with an O. Okay. Um, so let's see, future volcanology. Um, I'd say in terms of people being interested in it, there's, there's definitely a big supply. I mean, um, there are probably, you know, 10 or 15 postdocs just here at my branch of the survey who all work on volcanoes. Um, I think there, there are always going to be students interested in it. It's, it's exciting. Um, but when you find out just how many different thing, aspects of volcanoes you can work on, that, that opens up a lot of avenues. And I think that's really attractive. Sure. Um, in terms of funding, um, <laughs> I sort of have a, a, a um, policy perspective on this as well, because I spent a year in Washington, D.C. sort of observing um, the congressional committees who who decide funding, um, at least in the in the United States, through the National Science Foundation and through um, you know directly funding agencies like the USGS, and there's sort of a battle going on to defend basic research um, because it's hard for some politicians to say, you know, why should we see why we should be spending money on is somebody going out and making a geologic map um, when it doesn't contribute directly to to the economy or it doesn't make jobs or something like that. Um, but what we spent a lot of time trying to explain to them is, you know, how this geologic map is going to, you know, maybe help this exploration company decide where to drill for oil and gas or where to look for new mineral resources. And then that's going to employ people at the mines or at the drill sites. And it's a sort of trickle up um, effect. So a lot of time gets spent defending basic research and it's, it, it feels and looks sometimes like a losing battle. Um, I know the, the USGS budget has been pretty much flat for the last you know, five, six, 10 years, something like that. Um, but I think there are enough people in Congress and in, in funding agencies who understand why it's important to be doing the research. Um, and volcanoes in general are sort of flashy. You know, if a volcano erupts, everybody notices. And if it happens to erupt in, say, you know, an air traffic route, they definitely notice. Um, so, yeah, every once in a while, there'll be these little influxes of money because somebody's paying attention to, to an, a big eruption or an event like that. Um, you know, I, I obviously don't want to say 
we need another eruption in the United States to sort of reinvigorate um, the, the research money. But it's, it's definitely true that, say, when Mount St. Helens erupted, um, volcanology in this country really took off. Like, you know, the USGS started doing a lot of it. There was a lot of funding to set up the observatory there. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, disasters are, are unfortunately good ways to 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 get more funding involved but i think we've sort of steadily been been cheerleading for for um basic research along the way so uh if a volcano explodes in the Aleutian islands say does anyone hear it <laughs> yes um they they've started uh re well, not replace it. Well, they've been replacing some of the seismic network up there. Um, there, there are seismometers on a lot of those volcanoes, but they're getting old. And so Congress, I think, just gave the survey some money to, to update that monitoring system. So yeah, we do know that most of those volcanoes erupt. Um, it doesn't usually affect anyone except maybe a few uh, airplanes that happen to take that route over to, you know, Russia Bowl. or... The North Pole, something like that. Yeah. But I would say that there's one of those going off, you know, maybe every month something erupts up there. I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but it's pretty common. Hmm. Awesome stuff. So yeah. um, I want to thank uh, Dr. Jessica Ball again, volcanologist. Thanks for coming on the show. Live long and prosper. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. How many times do you hear that joke? All the time. About a million. My family loves yeah, it. I mean, <laughs> Okay, so here's to um, me being unoriginal, Matt's first introduction to the show, and having an awesome scientist who can talk about something more fun than software on board. Uh, Jessica, thanks again for coming on, and Matt, thanks for the intro. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, thank you. Bye.